I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Government leaders reach a historic deal on carbon emissions to combat the climate crisis, including a 25% cut in agriculture. This is an important day but it is not the end of the journey. It is not even the beginning of one. There can never be enough. The scale of the challenge is so great that we do have to go to the max, do the absolute everything. A year the world changed. The war in Ukraine continues to cause a global refugee, food, fuel and energy crisis. Where does it all end? Business group IBEC warns growth is slowing in Ireland as America goes into a technical recession. What's going on in the global economy and how will it impact us here? Many of the uh, um, uh, significant uh, banking personnel and economists say we're not in a recession. Tonight we'll be discussing all the big stories of the year so far with our panel. Join the conversation on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. It's already been a year in which everything changed with massive implications for all of our lives. And even bigger changes are on the way. The war in Europe broke out at the end of February when Russia invaded Ukraine, sparking a refugee crisis and an international food, fuel and energy emergency. This war came against the background of a growing global climate crisis and soaring inflation everywhere, pushing up the price of food and fuel. Today, the government agreed an historic deal to reduce climate emissions, including a 25% cut for the agriculture sector. For those who say on the environmental side, and I absolutely understand why, that this is not enough, there can never be enough. The scale of the challenge is so great that we do have to go to the max, do the absolute everything, because it's such a critical time. There's so little time left. But in this, we will start and make a really good, strong start. And as we learn by doing, we could speed up. But we have to start now, working together. We won't do it if it's divisive, as I said. Well, with me to discuss all of this and more, I'm joined by Kevin Doyle, Head of News at Media House, broadcaster Mary louise O'Donnell, journalist David Davenpower, Ocean FM journalist Claire Ronan, and Virgin Media News economics correspondent Paul Colgan, you're all uh, very welcome to the programme. David, to start with you, we have a deal. We got white smoke. We didn't know if we were going to um, before the recess. This is a landmark agreement, isn't it? And these negotiations were pretty torturous for both sides. 
It will be a landmark agreement if it works and if it's implemented. But despite the kind of Churchillian tones from uh, Charlie McConnell there saying it was the beginning of the, the start of not the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end or whatever he said, uh, it's not at all clear how this is going to be implemented. Uh, the targets are all very well. I think that uh, Eamon Ryan was a bit more uh, realistic when he said it is a start and it, it's a first step. But implementation will be the key. After all, we learned today that... Uh, less than half of the targets in the existing climate action plan, plan, plan have been met. Uh, they've been delayed by bureaucracy, by stakeholder engagement, by uh, legislative difficulties. Uh, so one can only begin to imagine uh, the difficulties that this particular plan uh, will encounter. It is aspirational. We don't know the level of uh, compulsion there will be, how much carrot and how much stick there will be for agriculture. So I think it's really too early to say that it's a, land, a landmark deal. They do have to go about trying to implement this, but they also just have to sell it, don't they, David? They have to sell it to their own backbenchers, and mm -hmm. we've seen the real division in the last couple of weeks between uh, the Greens and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, well, particularly I think, the rural I think, there. I, I think the climate change... Uh, a deal was a kind of a proxy battleground for the three government parties. You had people sniping at Michal Martin. You had people who wanted uh, Eamon Ryan to be up to the top end of those uh, the, the scale that was set there. And even in Fine Gael, you had a group, uh, including former Minister Charlie Flanagan, saying far farmers were being unfairly uh, targeted. So it was, if you will, uh, a proxy for tensions within the three government parties. It will be very interesting to see uh, if... Uh, the sniping continues. But of course, I, I think that uh, Micheál Martin, Eamon Ryan and Leo Varadkar have one great advantage in that they're going into the holiday season now. And I think to have the deal done is an achievement. To have it done now is probably a, 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 a very auspicious piece of timing. Yeah, and Kevin, look, as David says, the implementation is going to be the tough part, but we wouldn't have had any implementation if we didn't have this, this deal today. But what was so interesting was we got 25%. Was it be 22? Would it be 30? But we got 25% for agriculture. No mention of the herd and whether no. it needs to be cut to achieve that 25%. No, and Eamon Ryan made no mention of it, or Charlie McConnell, indeed, at that press conference that came this evening. And the reality is that every analyst who has looked at this have told us that we couldn't go as far as 25%, that really we couldn't even go beyond 22% without some reduction in the national herd. And of course, when farmers hear that, they think the national herd sounds like a great big thing. Actually, that means small farms losing the number of cattle and that worries farmers because that means they lose income. So the reality is there's a lot of talk about technology and, and stuff that kind of sounds a little bit like the Brexiteers talking about solving the border with technology that doesn't yet exist. These uh, figures that are all in this black box somewhere yeah, exactly. for future technologies. But, but the truth is that if we're to get to 2030 and do this, uh, and of course we keep talking about agriculture, there's, there's all sorts mm. of changes for all of us, not just, just farmers, but to do it in agriculture, the herd will have to be smaller. There will be less cattle in Ireland by 2030 if they are to reach these targets. But of course, one thing, just to pick up on what David said, the government in the press release this evening made a point of saying that it's entirely voluntary on behalf of the agricultural sector. So there is no stick. It's all about carrot and incentives. There won't be any. Eamon Ryan won't be going around rural Ireland on his bicycle uh, with some sort of smoke device in the air to see what people are up to. Uh, I just want to go to Skype because we are joined by Pat McCormick, who's the president of the Farmers Group, the ICMSA. You're very welcome to the programme, Pat. As uh, Kevin said there, it is voluntary. Have you any difficulty with this 25% uh, cut in uh, agricultural emissions? Is it achievable, realistic for you? 
It's certainly not achievable and is not a realistic target. Uh, we would have felt that 22% was hugely ambitious, albeit it was a target that could could be up there uh, and could be striven to, we could strive towards achieving it. That additional 3% puts, puts huge pressure, it puts it out of out of reach, uh, one would believe, for agriculture. You know, I'm here in West Cork tonight at an ICMSA meeting, and there's huge anxiety, there's frustration. There's ordinary farm families, because it was quite rightly put by the last speaker, you know, that if there was to be a national call to uh, reflect in, in small, ordinary farms, uh, losing their numbers, losing their ability to remain viable. Uh, one couple there spoke tonight, you know, with two kids in college in Dublin under severe financial pressure, and would find themselves having to cut back uh, in cow numbers at a time when they need they need income in order to support their family. So just to be clear, Pat, do you do think if 25% is the figure that that does require a cull in the national herd? One would hope that it doesn't. Uh, that that the various ruminant additives that are that are being advanced uh, will deliver and will deliver in time uh, for farm families. And just to say also that, you know, today or yesterday or tomorrow isn't the start of the agricultural evolution when it comes to being environmentally compliant. There's been significant investment on farm and slurry storage in low emission slurry spreaders and the use of uh, environmentally friendly chemical fertilizer. Yeah, I did in the hear uh, Charlie McConnell uh, mention that today, but I did also hear Eamon Ryan saying this is good news for agriculture. I'm convinced of it, he said. Income streams will come from this. Does that reassure you? No, it doesn't. It actually scares me um, because maybe I'm meeting the wrong farmers or maybe Eamon is meeting the wrong farmers. Maybe the farmers that Eamon is meeting aren't, aren't real farmers depending on farming for a living. Um, make no mistake about it, uh, over the last 10 years, agriculture and farmers have been guided by government policy. And there has been a significant shift in that policy today uh, where, where there seems to be a shift towards moving away from uh, sustainable food production. And, uh, you know, one would have to ask themselves, because we are a, a global population and climate is a global issue, ultimately. If we reduce production in this country, are we going to reduce global emissions overall? Certainly, it appears as if we're not, that it's going to be produced in a less efficient country. And that's extremely disappointing for a population of people. Okay, all right, uh, Pat McCormick, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, Claire, just to go to you, that's the, you know, the agriculture uh, position, but then you had the opposition and climate scientists today saying, you know, this wasn't enough. The Sock Dems, People Before Profit said it was a shocking failure of this government. It's an enormous blow to those who are trying to deal with the climate crisis. And then you had Sinn Féin. I'm not quite sure what their position is. Mm. Well, they've been very quiet. It's obvious that they're quiet, but there is a climate action plan and we are going to have to adhere to it um, or we'll be put under a lot of pressure. Um, I mean, of course, he would have sympathy with the farmers, but we're going to have to change the way we lead our lives, all of us. And it's going to affect every single business industry in the whole country. And unfortunately, that is just what's going to have to be done if we're going to achieve our targets. Yeah, Marie-Louise, I was listening to Eamon Ryan in that press conference today and he said it a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. We've been so focused on agriculture, agriculture, because there was such difficulty um, getting agreement there. But he said transport. Transport is the one that's going to be difficult to implement. He talked about a 50% um, cut in emissions in transport. He right. talked about fundamentally changing how we all live our lives, you know, out of the car, onto public transport, 
15 minute towns, mm. get used to carpooling. Are you ready to share your car with somebody? Well, I wouldn't mind if I could get the train. There's no train to Donegal, mm. uh, there's no train to Ackle, and there's no train to an international airport. So I don't know where we're going to get there unless we're going to go on the cycle lanes, which are now all over Klonski. I, I, we're going back, so I'm not too sure about that. I think that's kind of fantasy. And I sometimes think that he is a philosopher and he's a very fine philosopher, but he's not a realist. And I think the 25% um, reduction is absolutely ridiculous. And he, he forgets at his peril that this is an agricultural country and that the farmers are not going to go for this. And neither are the politicians because they're, most of their constituents live outside um, the Red Cow Roundabout. And, you know, we are not the USA and we are not China. We are one of the finest, finest growers of food and meat in the world. So and what, we're the finest exporters of it. So do we you think six, we should have cuts in agriculture at all? Do you think we should oh, make yeah, any effort? Of course, any effort yes, of course we should make an effort, but 25% is absolutely ridiculous. There's six million cows in Ireland. They're in Brazil. They are going to actually extend their herd by, by about 23 or 24 million by 2030. So we're going to end up, we're actually going to end up importing meat because there has to be a call of the national herd if this is to happen. Because, because those emissions, other countries are yes, going to emissions are for, are deal with our emissions the way we want. Yeah, I think the whole thing is, it's like I was reading in The Guardian today a brilliant article about the deforestation of Brazil and how the deforestation in the last year had been great than have they deforested seven times the size of London or 13 times the size of New York. And while I understand that in the deforestation of trees, at the same time, we have Irish farmers, you know, in our land, looking in at that and being kind of nearly paralleled with that lunacy. Louise, are, lunacy. We right, are we right to compare ourselves with the laggards that are but Brazil? Pat, like, but is that who we want to compare ourselves But we to? are being compared in the sense that 25% on an island the size of Ireland is crazy. And I have to stand up for the farmers. It's not going to happen. And if I was a farmer, I would say no to it. Uh, Paul, the cost of all of this, because... It is underpinned in legislation, isn't it? And a lot of the farming organisations, in fairness, Mary Louise, I had them on the programme last week, they seemed to accept that they would have to make cuts even of 22%. So whether it's 22 or 25, the cost of it, Paul, and the implications this has for all future budgets, it's massive. Well, it's a story of money and economics, and money solves so many things. And I think the problem that farmers have at this stage is that there's no clarity, there's no long-term projection as to how they will be compensated, how will people whose incomes are affected by this major change that's going to take place over the next eight years? How and I don't will... know if there's a lot of trust either in this trust transition, mm. is there? Well, that's the issue. People want to know how much it's going to cost. They want to know what the bottom line is. And you spoke about transport and the 50% target there. That's going to be incredibly difficult to achieve in a country that has such poor public infrastructure in comparison to a lot of yeah. other European countries. And the fact is, if we don't hit the transport target, the farmers will be revisited. So this isn't necessarily... Well, everybody's going to be revisited this anyhow, aren't we? This is only the first step. But money, is money going to solve it? Because what are we going to do? Pay the farmers, I understand what you're saying economically, but pay the farmers to sit without turf in their fires, looking out the window at a land that they can no longer till. Is that what we're doing? Well, I feel, you'd have to feel sorry for the farmers. You go back to the removal of the milk quotas about 10 years yeah. ago. They were encouraged to go out and grow mm. their herds. Yeah. Dairy cows have increased by 45, yeah. over 45% in the past decade. Milk production's up over 60%. Mm. So you do have to feel sorry for them. They were encouraged and incentivized mm -hmm. to go out and do this. And now they're being told, hold on a minute, you're going mm. to have to throw mm. it into reverse. Mm -hmm. Now, the analysis in this, much wide, this widely cited KPMG report suggests on the basis of what we've heard today, the beef herd would have to be reduced by 13%, yeah. the dairy herd by 11%. Mm. Now, 
That is possible, you would imagine, over the next eight years without... All right. The use of the Not dramatic for the word. small farmer. Okay, I just... Well, that is, that's an issue and they need a clear message in how but the small farmer is the seat of the land. We, we have discussed this at length uh, on the programme and I'm sure we're not finished. Plenty <laughs> more next season. Uh, but I want to talk about what happened in the US today. A, a technical recession. The Americans don't call it a recession just yet. And certainly Joe Biden didn't want to admit no. to a recession today, did he, Paul? But what exactly is going on and what impact will it have here? Well, they've had two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. And in anyone's book, usually that is a recession. But Biden's point, and, and, and the point being made by the Democrats, of course, for, for political reasons, is if you look at the, the unemployment numbers, still very low. A lot of people at work. Spending is still very high. So the, the boffins in, in a few weeks or a few months' time will turn around and tell us whether it was a recession or not. So you can call it whatever you want, but there's undoubtedly softness in, in, in the US economy. And this week was very important from Ireland's point of view. We're a globalised economy, heavily dependent on the corporation taxes that big US tech companies contribute. And they all reported this week. Facebook reported its first ever drop in revenue. Google's numbers were, weren't brilliant. Apple tonight has hit its targets, but they're talking about, they use the phrase, pockets of softness. So no matter we're still exposed here, aren't we? So no matter what happens in terms of whether it's called a recession or not, it's, it's the old phrase is when America sneezes, everyone else catches a cold. It's something we need to be aware of. And uh, in the context of the discussion we just had, corporation tax has been bailing us out on so many things. Yeah. If know, to... And we've been warned time and time again yeah. not to rely on it. I'm wondering, David, we are a very small, <clears throat> we are a very open economy. Do you feel there's a real economic shock looming here in Ireland, if we see, you know, a recession um, confirmed in the US? Well, Danny McCoy of IBEC today seemed fairly convinced that we uh, are already in the early stages of a recession here. I think we've had, you know, three problems. Uh, obviously, the supply chain knock-on from the COVID epidemic uh, is affecting firms. Um, obviously, the war in Ukraine it has a major effect. But probably the most significant effect of all has been the tightening in monetary policy around the globe from the ECB and the Fed onwards. Uh, the hiking we, of interest rates. Well, <coughs> that and we're now... We've had basically cheap money for a generation. We've had cheap food for a generation. That's all gone now. The days of quantitative easing and effectively printing money, they're well and truly gone. So I, I think, you know, we are looking at a very, very uncertain uh, economic picture. And as uh, Paul says, if there's a problem in the US, we pick it up pretty quickly. Yeah, very quickly, uh, Claire. Uh, they talked about this sort of uncertainty, this pause in, in spending. You know, it's not that people don't have it, they're just not sure. Do you see any evidence of that? Yes, you would. And, uh, you know, even out on the streets, particularly around the northwest where I live, yeah. um, people are really suffering. Um, and if, if Danny McCoy said he feels we're in the middle of a recession or we're beginning to be in one, you can see the evidence of that every day. And at the moment, a lot of families are sending their children back to school. So this is the most expensive time of year okay. with books all and right. all that sort of thing. So there are people really suffering out there. Yeah, all right. My thanks to uh, Paul, uh, who won't be joining us in the second part, but the rest of my panel will be staying uh, with me because we'll be looking at the downfall of Boris Johnson and the other big stories of the year so far, including a possible return of Trump. Stay with us. You're very welcome back. My panel is still with me, Kevin Doyle, Mary-Louise O'Donnell, David Davenpower, Claire Ronan, and I'm also joined now by security analyst, uh, Senator Tom Clonan. We're going to look at some of the big international uh, stories this year, Tom. I want to start off with the war in Ukraine. It has gone further down the news agenda, as mm -hmm. these things often do. But when you take a moment to think, 
of sort of the human cost here, the death toll of civilians, of military on both sides, an economy that's completely crippled, and the millions of people who have been displaced with this war. And at, the, at this point, no real end in sight. No, it's a grinding war of attrition. It's a, it's a brutal conflict. Uh, and at the moment, the Ukrainians appear to be mounting a massive counterattack. So it's just beginning to, to emerge. Uh, they've taken two points down in the south at Lavozia and at another place called Novo Mikolaevka. These are outside Kherson. And that's a very dramatic development because they're pushing, shelling Russian forces uh, back around Kherson. And up in the north, northeast of Kharkiv, they're pushing uh, towards the Russian border, you know, if, the, if they continue in, in that trajectory. So this makes Vladimir Putin a very, very dangerous uh, person because if he fails in this second phase to take Donetsk, he has all of Luhansk. If he fails to take Donetsk before winter, I think Putin's status as president, but I think his life is on the line. I think uh, so he may resort to desperate measures. That, that, that they will turn against him? The Russians will turn against him? Oh, I him? think so, because he's failed. Uh, he failed to take Kiev. He failed to take, decapitate the regime. Uh, he hasn't eliminated Zelensky. You know, NATO is coherent and unified. Uh, the European Union has, has remained resolved, despite Brexit and so on. Um, so this is a very dangerous moment, because if he cannot take uh, Donetsk, he may be tempted to resort to a measure like a, a small tactical nuclear weapon. The Russians have developed nuclear weapons that are about one-tenth the size of the, the weapon used at Hiroshima. And that, that would be a, a complete game-changer, and I think it would bring us into a different environment. This, this conflict, you know, you, you cannot dislodge the Russians now from Donetsk uh, or Crimea, because that would represent a war of annihilation and an escalation to the point that inevitably Europe would be drawn into it. And so what there will puzzle, be a compromise, do you well, think? Well, what puzzles me is the lack of energy uh, being, being demonstrated by the Secretary General of the United Nations mm. and other world leaders. We have to bring this war to an end mm. because if we don't, you know, it's going to... Yeah. Uh, it, it'll lead, I wouldn't even say a catastrophic outcome, but it could lead to a cataclysmic outcome. Yeah. And David... We were just talking about that actually in the break. There has been very little talk recently of an off-ramp here, of a compromise, of how we get this to stop, which ultimately is bringing both sides together, as uncomfortable as that might be, and well, perhaps compromising, and the Ukrainians having to compromise. Well, sadly, I don't think we're in that phase uh, of the conflict. Uh, I think it has the, 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 the war itself has some more time to run. I'm surprised to hear Tom say uh, that he thinks that Putin's grip on power might be diminished, mm. because... Uh, after all, the Russians have 800,000 uh, potential uh, troops to call up. Uh, now, there's reservists, obviously, in Ukraine as well, but their forces, their standing army is 200,000. Now, they have the benefit of very sophisticated weaponry from the West, which is inflicting huge uh, damage on the Russian infrastructure. But as you can see, with those kind of numbers, I think the, the conflict has some time to run uh, before... Uh, people start talking about getting around the table. There's no talk about yeah, that right. yet. But the Russians have lost one in three. Um, so if you're a Russian soldier and you're sent to Ukraine, you have a one in three chance of being crippled or killed. The Ukrainians have 400,000 combat veterans since 2014 that they can call upon. And that's why I say this would represent a war of annihilation. What Putin must do now, because he's running out of military op options, is he would need to you know, make a formal declaration of war 
mobilize the Russian public and introduce conscription on a massive scale. And I don't know that... Um, and I agree with you. Not without David. standing he, he, all of the is, spin and he, all of the he, propaganda is, and the control he, of the media in Russia. That he he's would get experiencing away with that. A, a blip of popularity at the moment. But if he fails, and he has failed in all of his strategic objectives well, thus far. Is, is that true? Then, I mean, after all, the sanctions that were the West imposed on Putin uh, haven't really had much of an effect. And in fact, they've boomeranged on us. Uh, the Russian economy appears not to have suffered in any material way. Uh, yet, we in the West. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...are facing uh, gas rationing in the winter. Mm -hmm. So I think Putin will take some comfort uh, from yeah. that. Well, with respect, I think gas rationing is, you know, is very little when you compare that to two million Ukrainians deported... But I suppose we're, we're talking about, 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 about impact. Well, yeah. talking about the impact. Well, I'm, just sorry, Louise, yeah. you know, I'm just going to ask Tom a question, sure. because you, I'm not a, you're a strategist and a military background in security, but what Western leader is able to stand up to him? I mean, you sort of mentioned that, that the United Nations wasn't really doing their job. I mean, Claire Daly stood up. I wouldn't necessarily follow her politically, but she stood up and said, we have to, sanctions aren't going to work, we have to sit around the table. Mm. Sabina Higgins wrote a very, very good article, the president's wife recently, well, an article around this, around some kind of level of negotiation around the table, because I actually don't think, even though I think the Ukrainians are an incredible race, if you look at any of the work they did, even in the winter of discontent in 2014, brilliantly brave people. But what leader has stood up or is capable of standing it, up to Putin? I mean, is it, that not the question? It's a good question, but, I mean, you can see that Putin has been halted in his tracks. One of the things that this war has revealed is that the Russian military are not the Red Army. They haven't swarmed across the borders, across Ukraine, threatening Lithuania, Finland and so no, on. They because have of the halted. resistance. And, and, you know, there has been tremendous support and there has been... You see, Putin misunderstood. Sorry, I'm quoting Bertie Hearn. He misunderestimated <laughs> NATO uh, because that was weakened by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. The European Union was weakened by Brexit, but there has been great coherence. But the West, I just the West, sorry, I just built, the West built Putin into what he is now. I was very struck mm -hmm. today looking at some archive footage of the, uh, was the uh, G8 summit in Enniskillen. Everybody cozying yes. up to Putin. Yeah. And it was the, the new world order that Putin was going to be part of. And Everybody how wrong they were. squeezing his elbow um, and saying, I just want to bring this back, Kevin. I just want to bring this back. If you look at European history, though, the strong men in Europe, the so called strong men, when they unravel, 
they unravel very quickly. Uh, to bring this sort of back home to yeah. Ireland, Kevin, um, you mentioned the energy crisis, the potential energy rationing, and just the cost, the cost of everything, food, food fuel, fertiliser, uh, all going up. But I was struck today by... Uh, the profits, the profits of Shell and mm -hmm. the profits of uh, our very own Borgash Energy, mm -hmm. who to adjust their own profits for the first six months of this mm -hmm. year by 74%, while households really, really struggle to make ends meet. Yeah, millions. I think anyone seeing that headline this mm -hmm. evening is, is choking on their tea, to be honest, because it's very hard to explain that we have been told the government are to some extent, bailing out households with the, the 200 euro that they've put towards electricity bills already and they're going to have to do more in the budget. Like we're coming into a budget in September, at the end of September, which is basically going to be the Ukrainian war budget because yes, there's all these other things going on in the world in terms of cost of living and we talked about America and the tech companies struggling and on post-COVID, but really a lot of our problems, everything is getting pointed back towards Ukraine. So on one level, there's very little in terms of policy that a government can do for that. So the pressure therefore comes, particularly from the opposition parties, is just keep bailing out people the way we did in COVID with pub payments and with employment uh, subsidies. Just keep bailing out people. But we can't keep doing that if we head towards a recessionary territory. Yeah. I just want to move on. Sorry, David, I'm just very conscious of time and I do want to get to, uh, to Boris Johnson and to uh, Trump, my two favourite men of 2022. <laughs> uh, to start with you, Claire, um, let's look at uh, Boris Johnson and... His exit speech, I suppose, is, you know, last leader's questions. Hasta la vista. Hasta baby, la vista, baby. baby. Parting words. Pause, is, baby. Pause, baby. Pause, baby. And everybody is replaceable or indispensable. But look, he, he, if you look at it, you know, there were a lot of grey people who were leading that country for a long time. And he came along and he was boisterous and he was flamboyant and he looked like the boldest boy in school. And I think most people probably knew he lied. Yeah. Um, and he just continued to lie and he, it was how he fell on his sword. It was nasty and dirty politics. Um, but I would think he probably deserved it. Uh, Marie-Louise? Well, I think it was his Were you a fall. fan? Yeah, well, I thought he had personality and I thought he was a great campaigner and a brilliant old um, a mayor of London. I thought he lacked the one thing that a leader has to have, which is a bit of decorum. He had mm. no decorum. You can forgive a lot. You can forgive people making mistakes and bumbling up and company and all of that. And, but you don't forgive lack of decorum. And he lacked decorum. And at some stage, he didn't know where he was. You know, he didn't really realise that he was a head of state, you know, a head of a big country. And that people and where were did you see? Where did you see that lack of decorum? Oh, in the in the gate, in his gate, in the in the in the movement, in but is the that responses. Not him? Is that not sort of his personality? No, but you have, everybody has to learn if you're a public figure that there are boundaries to behaviour, you know, and that you I had to learn them myself. <laughs> you know, that there are boundaries. <laughs> there are boundaries to behaviour. Well, that, you that's know, very promise. well behaved tonight. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he never stopped campaigning. Correct. That was his problem. Correct. He's well, a fantastic correct. campaigner. Well, of course, he's still very popular in the Conservative Party in the, among the grassroots. Mm -hmm. There's a petition. Wait till he is the Secretary General to of NATO. Uh, well, that will never happen. <laughs> That's his, his, his parting words important. were, of course, hasta la vista, which means see you later, uh, yeah. which is, is given a rise to all yes. these theories that uh, he's planning a comeback, which I don't countenance for a moment. But I think the real legacy that he's yeah. left, and the legacy of uh, uh, Theresa May and David Cameron, whom I would really uh, regard as pretty culpable in all this, in... in knocking over the first domino, is there is no succession planning. Uh, there couldn't be, in uh, Theresa May's case, 
And it's even more acute in the case of Boris Johnson. He's been defenestrated, but he spent the previous three years surrounding himself with a cabinet of total mediocrities. Mm. Uh, well, so now the con it's a contest between varying shades of mediocrity. Uh, talking about no succession planning, do the Republicans have a succession plan, Tom, beyond Donald Trump? Do you think there really is support? He does seem to indicate he's certainly out rallying and gathering money hand over fist as if he's going to make a presidential uh, bid again in 2024. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice segue because you've gone from one unethical individual who just served himself and not the British people to a president who equally was self-serving. Um, they don't need Trump. Uh, the Republicans, they used to campaign on the basis of lower taxes and small government. Now they campaign for office on the basis of racial hatred, hate speech, paranoia, xenophobia. So, you know, there's any number of people in, you know, waiting in the wings to, to take up those cudgels. OK, for, I just want to play a very, party. very quick clip. Cassidy Hutchinson, she was a previous aide uh, of Donald Trump and she spoke at the um, Capitol Hill riot hearings. Here's what she had to say about Donald Trump and how he operates. I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall. So that's Donald Trump. He fired his plate against the wall, ketchup dripping down. He wasn't happy. He uh, it was interesting. decorum lessons. Exicus, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Mary you might be the one to give them <laughs> things Maybe you've learned it so well. What was interesting this week, uh, Kevin Doyle, I thought, was the, the New York Post and um, the editorial there. You know, they supported him. They supported him over Biden even only two years ago. And this week they said he is not fit for office. That's what we've learned mm. from these Capitol riot um, hearings. He might not have incited what happened, um, you know, back in January 6th last year, but his silence, his silence, what he knew and what he didn't mm. do about it really proves that he's just not fit for office. Is he losing support in the media over there? Well, no more than with Boris. We knew he wasn't fit for office mm, before yeah. he went in there the first time. So that doesn't mean a whole lot. But I think he probably is losing support in some of the middle ground, particularly among female voters who this doesn't seem to be sitting as well with, or at least that's mm -hmm. what the commentary out in America are telling us. Mm -hmm. So it won't be an easy way back for him. That doesn't mean he won't try. But, uh, Mike Pence has turned against him, which is something I found quite significant. Yesterday, Mike Pence urged oh, right. Americans uh, not to look to the... Uh, Republicans not to look to the past. Maybe because and he sees himself as the future. Well, possible, that could be it. And the question right. is, who's listening to Mike Pence? <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to uh, Senator Tom Clone and the rest of the panel is staying here with me. And next, the political season in Ireland so far. Who's having a good year? But more significantly, who's having a bad year? Stay with us. You're very welcome back. Now, my panel is still here with me. Kevin Doyle, head of Media House. Head of News at Media House, rather. Broadcaster, Mary Louise. I promoted you there, Kevin, for the <laughs> final show of the season. Uh, Mary Louise O'Donnell, journalist David Davenpower and Ocean FM journalist uh, Claire Ronan. Thanks for staying with us. We're going to look at uh, the political scene over the last year uh, and a bit of a political scorecard. Uh, Mary Louise, I want to start with you. You're, you're winner of the year. Who you think has had a good year politically? Well, um, my mother was watching the television in her late 90s. She's since passed away and she was watching about a year ago and she was watching Micheál Martin and she said to me, he's become very popular. And I said, that's right, mommy has. And I said, why do you think that is? And she said, oh, two reasons. 
he's very experienced, and he has manners. Hmm. And I said, Mama, you're he's absolutely decorum. right. Back to the decorum yeah. again. No, but manners. I mean, through the thick and the thin, and he's gone through a lot. And I would, and he has not had an army behind him. He hasn't necessarily had the support of the Fine Fall behind him. And I would give him. I'd give him politician of the year for that, the way he has stood up to a lot of things and the isolation of being on his own. And I don't come from a Fianna Fáil background, so it's an objective, it's an objective analysis. Uh, Claire, well, it was interesting because your um, politician of the year is Mary Lou Macdonald on the opposition mm. benches. Yes, I think she has been very successful this mm. year. I mean, you cannot deny how successful Sinn Féin are at the moment, how much they've gone up in the polls. They are saying what people want to hear. So we're talking about people not being able to afford to put coal in their fire because a bag of coal has gone up doubled in price or worrying about school books. And Sinn Féin look like a solution to people who are struggling at the moment. They're just saying what people want. Uh, Kevin, it's interesting to sort of watch, I suppose, the dynamics at play between Fine Gael, particularly Fine Gael and Fine Fáil and Sinn Féin, and to look at the exchanges um, in uh, the Dáil over the last year. Have they become more heated. Are Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael really scared now of the threat of, of Sinn Féin and the rise of Sinn Féin, which nobody can deny? Well, two out of three will fight out the next election. And that is the reality. So what you can actually see Fine Gael doing, and Leo Varadkar, you see doing this quite a bit, Pascal Dunahoo and others, is they are going after Sinn Féin because they want to position themselves mm. as the alternative. Because when it boils down to it, there are people in this country who will never vote Sinn Féin, mm -hmm. who have memories of the troubles, who see what Claire's talking about in terms of the populism, um, no climate change policy to, you know, tonight. They won't take sides because that's a difficult question at the minute. So let's sit back, see how it plays out, and then we'll criticise whatever the government decides to do. No, they do say do. They, can't, they don't have access to the information. That's yeah, what well, said everyone else in the country has made their mind up at this stage. Um, but so that's what's happening, I think, is Fine Gael are trying to position themselves mm -hmm. there. And Fianna Fáil are getting a bit lost in the middle and that's why you see the rumblings. Micheál Martin, let's be honest, he says he wants to lead them into the next election. It's not going to happen. Um, he's had his stint as Taoiseach now and I think mm. if uh, Mary Louise says he has manners and decorum, I think the party will give him a an experience. And I think if he's got that clever political mm. eye, he'll pick his moment mm. and he'll surprise them True. and he'll say, I'm out the gap. And, and David, do you agree for you, Michael Martin, is your politician of the year. You think I think he has Michael a good Martin year has done very well. The challenges. He's done very well. He hasn't been a lucky general. He had COVID on his watch. He had uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, a lot of backbenchers uh, see him as a liability, which he may well be. But I think he's got through his term as Taoiseach. Mm. And he's heading for the gate now, let's face it. He's got through his term and without too many missteps. Um, it's not a fist bump moment for uh, Micheál Martin because he doesn't have, you know, huge achievements to point to. But I think he has been a good teacher. I think he's been better than expected. And uh, I would expect him uh, to, as, you, as Kevin says, he certainly won't lead um, Fianna Fáil into the next election. Uh, it would not surprise me at all, given that it's Fianna Fáil pick, uh, to see him as the next EU commissioner. Uh, in due course in a couple of years' time. Uh, in the meantime, of course, he's got to negotiate the very significant speed bump of the handover in December, which is going to destabilise every party because there'll be reshuffles. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even re rule out a reshuffle in the Green Party. And there'll certainly be reshuffles in, um, in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. But on balance, I think that uh, Micheál Martin uh, can claim to have had a very good year. And yet, and yet, Claire, we look at the polling, don't we? And oh. they are still polling 
poorly. Mm. And there still seems to be a number of disgruntled backbenchers. And that number seems to be increasing. Not necessarily, mm. they say, with, mm. with Micheál Martin himself, but this, or, or how he is as a Taoiseach, but perhaps how he is as the leader of the Fianna Fáil party and what he's doing to carve out a clear identity uh, for Fianna Fáil and who they are and what they represent. But what they look like is that they're divided. You know, like Jim O'Callaghan, rebel backbencher. Now, we haven't heard from him for a while. Our own Mark McSharry, not happy with Fianna Fáil party. Mm. You know, they look divided. They look disjointed. They also, I'm afraid to say it, you don't see too many young people coming up through the ranks of Fianna Fáil. Uh, they need to gather themselves mm. together and put on a united front. But one thing here, you know... We live in a bubble, all of us here, we're reporting on politics all the time and we're interested in it. Most people really, you know, have a little bit of interest. A lot of people just have a bit of an interest and Sinn Féin make a lot of noise. Now, you know, other people will have lots of criticisms of their policies, particularly when it comes to climate action and, and the troubles and all of that. But they make a lot of noise and they're like Rottweilers in the doll. Actually, just before, um, David, we go uh, to you, I just want to play a clip from the Doyle speaking of Rottweilers and it was one of the um, I suppose exchanges more colourful exchanges uh, between Michal, Mar Michal Martin and Mary Lee MacDonald earlier this year. Take a look. That's the reality for generation rent. Here, here, here. Don't, you, don't you dare talk to me about false narratives or claim that you understand the crisis. You clearly don't. My background and where I grew up and what we had to put up with was far different to yours. Okay? I just want to make this point. I didn't, I didn't interrupt you. Interruption, please. Don't you dare lecture me. Okay? I understand the realities of life as well as anybody else in this house. And I don't intend to understand it more. Now, David, what did well, you make of that? I must say, I was delighted to see Micheál yeah. Martin trying to shatter that narrative that uh, Fianna Fáil uh, is the party of privilege and Sinn Féin is the party of the underdog and the proletariat. I mean, he simply made the very personal point that his upbringing was a lot more modest uh, than Mary Lou MacDonald's, who is making herself out to be, if you will, the champion of the proletariat and in her own way quite uh, liable to uh, criticise people uh, for sending their children to private schools, which she attended herself. But I think that marked a kind of a turning point. Uh, I think that Fianna Fáil and, to a greater degree, Fine Gael have been relying on criticising Sinn Féin about their involvement in the Troubles and the IRA. And that falls on deaf ears. And I think uh, that particular uh, uh, um, uh, exchange between uh, Micheál Martin and Mary Lou MacDonald perhaps marked a kind of a, a shift in, 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 the, yeah. uh, in, the, in the in the attack narrative for Fianna Fáil. And it's interesting, isn't it, Kevin, because we heard a lot of that from the backbenchers, that they want to see more of this. Mm. They want to see this uh, attack, and I, I predict we're going to see a lot more of it uh, in the next season of <laughs> Dial Air in 2022. And yet behind the scenes we're reading, in your paper, uh, among others, that they're actually cozying up on the corridors together because come next election they could be going into power. Well do the basic maths on it and that's what people are doing is and they're looking it seems unlikely Fine Gael are sitting their stall out they don't look like they're going to come near Sinn Féin. The obvious next government is a Sinn Féin Fianna Fáil government. Um, for Sinn Féin to do individual deals with independence mm -hmm. will be tough. They'll have eaten up a lot of them in the election anyway um, in final seats so it, it's the obvious next government and if Sinn Féin are yeah. going to realise at some point that if they want to get into government they're not going to have an overall majority, despite 
how big their poll numbers are. So they need somebody. Sinn Féin will then do, do to Fianna Fáil what they did to mm. the SPLP. OK, I just want to move on because I'm conscious that uh, Michael Martin, Michael Martin, Mary Lou, you're three winners. I'm going to come to yours in the minute of your politician of the year. No Leo Varadkar, all right, Louise. How have Fine Gael performed? I think they, they have had been more coordinated because the, 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 the point you made about the division, people don't like division, they don't like looking at division and they don't like looking pe- mm. people not speaking from one voice. I think they've done very well. They've been, I think they've thrown money at problems as opposed to working them out. I think if, I, if Mary Lou got a run for her money, she got a run for her money from Leo Varadkar because he did stand up to her in the doll and you were right, we were waiting for it. Somebody stand up. If you want, somebody stand up to the kind of narrative and rhetoric mm. and it's very attack rhetoric um, from Sinn Féin and he stood up to her and he stood up to her with all his personal force and he stood up to her the Leo you don't know because he's quite re- he's quite reserved and he just said what he had to say about how he felt about the, the way Fine Gael and he was being treated by, by um, uh, Pierce. In that situation, so I think I think they've done relatively well. They've had a hard trip too. It'll be interesting to see his reshuffle. Uh, speaking of reshuffle, uh, David Davenport, your bad year, let's say. I don't want to call anybody in politics a loser because a lot of them were, you know, damn hard. But your loser of the year is Stephen Donnelly, and you feel come the reshuffle. Well, I've had a bit of a I've had a bit of a rethink here. I think I'd better think He's it out again. Called it VAR. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um, my, uh, my brickbat goes to Simon Coveney. I think he's had a dreadful year. Uh, Zapongate might have been the year before last, but uh, he's had to virtually apologise to the Chief of Staff of the Army uh, for criticising him for meeting the Russian ambassador. Uh, obviously, the passport office is a continuing sword. He's been slightly condescending in his remarks about that. I think he's seen his chances of uh, succeeding uh, Leo Varadkar evaporate over the last 12 months. So I would certainly be giving him the thumbs down for 2022. He's your new uh, politician of the bad year. I see, Mary Louise, you... Um, no, not I a- have a politician. I have a pol- political force that I think is an absolute disgrace in this country. The biggest disgrace... Ever, and they have such power, and that is our banks. Francesca Donoghue, who said that the bankers should get extra money, our banking corporation, New Cultural Committee, who had a report, and guess what the report said? Nobody believes in the banks. And to end it all, AIB, who bought Arkle and put Mary Lou up on top of it, and she can ride into <laughs> Leinster House now, because if I was watching what AIB did, I would definitely vote Sinn Féin. They Although are they- a disgrace. Grace to the Irish people on the ground and, and to young buyers who they do they choke for years, who they will not allow to give a down give a proper down payment. The yeah. banks, in my opinion, are the powerhouse that is choking this country. I, I, I genuinely believe that. And the and the politicians. They, they changed their position when the, it came to um, the weakness of that, the weakness of making it local and the weakness of, cha- of changing it into quite quickly. And the politicians I'm not moving away from cash. I am one of the elders of Irish society, and me, along with a million others of me, aren't moving away from it. And thanks be to God for the Irish people who were able to stand um, up to them. And I, it's a, anyway. I just, <laughs> I just we're talking about politicians, so we'll just try and keep it with politicians for the but last couple of minutes of the program. Point well made. Uh, Kevin Doyle, your your bad year um, was Alan Kelly and I think it was your to the <laughs> Labour Party. Uh, obviously, he, he was forced out very publicly mm. and uh, Ivana Batrick was brought in um, as, as was the, the person to rejuvenate the Labour Party, but they haven't seen a bounce. No, and that's why I picked Alan Kelly because he's gone and forgotten. 
and nothing has changed for the Labour Party, to be honest. It's a new face, uh, but they got absolutely no bounce in the poll, which you, you expect. If you're going to change leader, you do it to get a bounce in the poll. Nothing came of it. So we shall see what kind of a campaigner Ivana Bacic is. But, you know, she won a by-election, but she failed in several other elections before that. I would be very worried for the Labour Party going into the next election, to be honest. OK, just finally, I want to go to your um, winner of the year because we've talked cost of living crisis, wars, uh, inflation, but you've gone for a more local issue, but perhaps the people's issue of this year, the lotto. Yeah, I tried to go outside the box of misery, uh, which is <laughs> we all we talk that, about. Kevin. So, yeah, rather than go for an obvious cabinet minister or Sinn Féin, Mary Lou, whatever, what was the one politician who had a tangible result on a campaign that they undertook <laughs> in the past, uh, since, since Christmas? And it was Bernard Durkin, the man who made the lotto give away their money. Um, <laughs> he may not have got any money for it himself, but I think it was the one story that united everybody behind a politician. And what an unlikely politician for the country to get behind. Yeah, this was the 19 million that nobody could win. What were the National mm -hmm. Lotto doing with their money that time? But yeah. somebody won it Except the we sold it for 400 million. The Labour <laughs> Party did. <laughs> All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to uh, my panel. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram, Tonight VMTV. The Tonight Show is taking a break for a few weeks. So until the next time, we see you. Good night. Have a lovely summer. Take care.